Today's reading from the Word of God comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Please follow along in your church Bibles on the screen behind me, or just sit and listen as I read. Once again, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 to 9. Following the reading, I invite you to respond in worship with the singing of the doxology. And at that time, children, you're welcome to go to the kids' zone through the door on your right. Hear the word of the Lord. Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and all knowledge. God, thus confirming our testimony among Christ, about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, church. My name is Bryn. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm so glad to be worshiping with you this morning. So like we do every Sunday, we want to take a moment and just pause before the Lord, open ourselves up to what God wants to speak to us uniquely today, and just invite God to speak to us through the word of God. And so I'll invite you to have a a moment of quiet to do that, and then I will open us with a word of prayer after a minute. God, we thank you for the name of Jesus. We thank you for everything that you have done in and through your son, that we might be called saints, that we might be invited into the family of God. No matter what we've done or left undone, no matter who we are or who we aren't, we pray that you would teach us more and more about our identity in you today and that out of that we would live and engage and interact with the world in redemptive and loving and holy ways. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, beloved congregation, today we gather in light of God's word to explore the profound and unceasing gift of grace from 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 9. As we dive into this passage, let us reflect on the grace that touches every aspect of our lives. The Apostle Paul tells us that we have been enriched in Christ In every way, grace is the divine wealth that sustains us on our journey. It's not just about material riches. uh, It's the richness of of love 
and forgiveness and purpose that only God can provide. Grace is God's treasure chest opened to us. In conclusion, my dear friends, let us remember that grace is not some distant concept, but a living reality in our faith journey. And as we leave this sacred space today, may we carry with us the knowledge that we are cherished, forgiven, and loved, and called to be agents of grace in this world. Let us pray together. Gracious and loving God, we thank you for the gift of grace. May it dwell in our hearts shaping us into vessels of your love and mercy. Amen. Okay, I feel like you guys weren't really listening to any of that. You can sit down. I think we have to have a conversation. I, I feel like you guys weren't really listening, and I think it's maybe because we haven't named the elephant in the room. So, right? So this is Ziggy. So now are we okay to proceed with the sermon? Uh, so this is my first time co-preaching with an elephant. I think it's going well. But every church has elephants in the room. They're those things that we just don't talk about. But we all know they're there. They're the, the big questions and the doubts. The old wounds from past church experiences, the, the narratives about ourselves or others that we carry around, the habits and the thoughts that we keep separate from our, our faith journey, complexities of, of modern life that we just don't know how to reconcile with what the Bible says. There are elephants in the room. We all know that they're there, but we don't really know how to engage with them. They're, they're hard to talk about. Sometimes they're scary to talk about even for preachers. And so sometimes we get up on Sunday mornings and we preach safe sermons about the more straightforward Christian stuff, and we just kind of pretend like the elephants aren't there, but they are. They're loud even when they're quiet. And even when we don't talk about them, they influence us. They distract us subtly, whether we realize it or not. They impact our ability to hear anything else because we haven't named and addressed and wrestled with and healed from the questions and the doubts and the narratives and the struggles that are really on the forefront of our minds when we walk in the room. Elephants separate our real-life questions and challenges and complications from our spiritual lives. They, they tell us subtly that those things uh, that we're wrestling with in our minds, those things don't really belong here in the church. The church is where we talk about Christian stuff. It's not where we talk about elephants. But here's the thing. The Apostle Paul talked about the elephants. The Apostle Paul was a man of his time, and his time was 2,000 years ago. He was ethnically Jewish, culturally Greek, and politically Roman. And by the time that he became a Christian leader in the early Christian church, he had learned how to interpret a lot of what was going on in society through the lens of the Christian faith. And so he talked about those things. He wrote letters to churches all over the ancient world telling them how to intertwine their spiritual life with the elephants in their world. For him, they weren't separate. Paul believed that everything that we do and think about, every question that we have about money, sex, power, politics, work, war, relationships, play, parenting, shame, gender, leadership, what we eat and what we drink, how we take care of our bodies, what we meditate on, how we stand up for the marginalized or don't, 
justice issues, social issues, identity issues. He believed that all of that is, is spiritual and should be engaged with in the church. And so he wrote all these letters all over the ancient world, and he, he would guide the early church on how to talk about and wrestle with and think about and engage with the elephants in the room. And this year at Anchor Bay, we want to join him. We spent most of last year going through the Gospel of John, and we specifically focused on how Jesus heals us and renews us and transforms the parts of our lives and world that are wounded and broken, and how Jesus makes all things new. And now as we continue to strengthen in our capacity and deepen in the faith together, I think we're ready to engage with some of these more complex life conversations. And so this morning we are starting a sermon series that we're calling Elephants in the Church, Hot Topics in the Corinthian Letters. So Paul wrote at least two letters to the church in Corinth, and these are some of my favorite books in the Bible because there are elephants all over these letters. So let's take a minute, and just before we kind of get into it, let's take a look at how Paul opens his first letter to the Corinthians. So he starts with this. It says, Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. So first off, he's letting you know that he's the one who wrote the letter along with a co-writer named Sosthenes. And Sosthenes was probably a local leader in the, the Christian world back then in, in Corinth. And so he has this local guy who's helping him to write the letter to the church in Corinth. So it's like they're writing, uh, they're, they're writing together, Paul and Sosthenes, and it says, to the church of God in Corinth. So they are writing to a specific church community at a specific time. It would be like if someone addressed a letter to us, it would be to Anchor Bay Church. These are specific people living in a specific time in history who are dealing with specific issues in, in their world, just like we do. And in this letter, we will see Paul addressing these particular conflicts that they are facing back then. We'll see him confront Christians who are sleeping with temple prostitutes. He'll give advice on what to do when you've been offered food that's been sacrificed to idols. He'll call out the rich people who are getting drunk on communion wine, which is a lot of those little communion packets. <laughs> now, you and I probably aren't doing that, I hope. Uh, we, we aren't necessarily facing the same kinds of issues in our world that they were facing back then in exactly the same way, but we are still invited to keep reading because there's something else that's interesting in the way that Paul opens his letter. So he addresses it to the specific Christians living in Corinth 2,000 years ago, and then he says this. He says, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, this letter is written to first century Corinthians. We're living in first century Corinth and we're gonna see their specific circumstances, but it's also written to all Christians everywhere. It's written to us. It's a little like when you get, do you guys get a piece of mail that says it's to John Smith or current resident? The letter does have a particular recipient, but it's also written, it's also addressed to anyone who opens it. Now, you and I, we may not deal with the exact same breed of elephant that they were dealing with back in the Corinthians' day, but Paul is giving us guidelines on how to approach and engage with the elephants that we do encounter in our day, these principles, the spirit of the law. And so I want to spend a few minutes introducing us to the church in Corinth, and then Ziggy and I will spend a few more minutes talking about this greeting in Paul's letter because it has dramatic implications for how we can engage with the rest of the elephants that we're going to encounter in this series. So, sound like a plan? Great. Uh, so, I'd invite you, if you brought your Bibles, to open up with me to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And just a reminder, we would love for everyone to have their own Bible. If you do not have your own Bible, we have Bibles in the back that we would love to just give you as a gift. Um, we have plenty more in the back. If you need one, please come talk to me, and we would love for you to be able to have your own Bible to bring to church. 
So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you can keep that open for now. We're going to talk a little bit about what was going on, what was the context of the city of Corinth. I know we've got lots of people who love history and kind of like all the social political stuff that was happening in in the, the Bible times. This book, this series is going to have so much of that. It's so much fun because I'm someone who loves that stuff too. So what was going on in the city of Corinth? Corinth was a great city. It was a major port city in that world. It was known for its wealth, wine, and women. Corinth was religiously diverse. There were temples everywhere you looked that were dedicated to the Greek and Roman gods, especially to Aphrodite, who was the goddess of love, beauty, and pleasure. There were thousands of temple sex workers and slaves whose lives were dedicated to helping people worship through prostitution. So Corinth became famous for its wild passions and its free morals. In fact, in the Greco-Roman world, world, there was a slang word for sleeping around, and that word was Corinthiazo. Corinthiazo. Basically, if you slept around, people would call you a Corinthian. It was said that Athens was famous, but Corinth was infamous. So Corinth had these kind of this reputation. It was also very socioeconomically diverse. There were people of every socioeconomic situation, from slave to free, from rich to poor, and everything in between. It was a huge economic center, because remember, it was a port city, and so it became this connection point for all kinds of different trade routes in that world. So people could move there, and they could become very wealthy. And because they had so many people traveling in and out of it constantly, it also became a major cultural center with all kinds of different schools of thought and religion and philosophy and artists who were coming in. So it was a little like they, they kind of took Los Angeles and Las Vegas and New York and they rolled them up into one city called Corinth. And the Corinthians were proud of it. They were proud of who they were. They were unique in that world. They were independent. And the Apostle Paul decided that he would spend a bit of time with them because of their influence over the ancient world and kind of where they were situated in the middle of those trade routes. And so he spent a year and a half in Corinth, and he got to know the Corinthians, and he, he started talking to them about Jesus. And eventually, a small group of them started following Christ, and they formed a, a Christian church. Now, this church community that started to form in Corinth, it was made up of mostly Greeks who had grown up in this pagan atmosphere. They had probably spent the majority of their lives worshiping the the Greek and Roman gods and goddesses like Aphrodite. And so when they joined the church, when they became Christians and joined the, the church, the way of Christ was probably pretty foreign to them. And it was not an easy transition. It's hard to change your entire way of life, especially when you're still living in the same house as before, in the same city as before, with all the same neighbors and pressures and values as before you were a Christian. Only now you're the weirdo who doesn't want to live that way anymore. It's really hard. It was hard to make that change. So eventually, after Paul had kind of moved on from Corinth and was talking in other cities, he starts getting these reports that things just aren't going that well in the church in Corinth. The people there were letting their old way of life, their old values and identities kind of seep into how they were interacting with each other and relating to each other as Christians, and they were straying from what Paul had taught them about the gospel of Jesus. They're they're fighting, and they're shouting at each other in worship gatherings, and they're hoarding resources from the poor, and they're bragging about having affairs, and they're causing divisions everywhere. They were in rough shape. I heard one pastor refer to the church in Corinth as the Bridezilla of Christ. And and Paul, he hears this and he gets very upset. So he's he's upset and he decides to address all the elephants in the room and he's going to write them a letter and call them back to the truth of the gospel. 
you know, sometimes people come, come talk to me and they're like, I'm super angry at this person. Can you help me figure out what to do about it? And we talk about how to work through their feelings. And in those conversations, I usually encourage them to start by just writing it all out in a letter that they aren't going to send. Like, get out all the feelings, win the argument, don't filter yourself, just get it all out of your system, write it out. And then, and this is important, don't send the letter. Paul sent the letter. I studied, I studied the Greek in 1 Corinthians, and there are poop emojis all over the place. Paul is not pleased with the Corinthians. This week, Pastor Allie basically summed it up in our conversation about the sermon. She summed up the entire letter like this. She said, it's basically like he says, dear Corinthians, God loves you, so knock it off. Love, Paul. And Paul's opening to this letter is my absolute favorite. I love how he opens this letter to the Corinthians. So usually when Paul is writing a letter to one of these ancient churches all over the world, he starts by telling them why they're so great. He says something that he's thankful for about them. So he tells the, the church in Rome that he's thankful for their faith. And he tells the church in Philippi that he's thankful for their partnership. And he tells the church in Colossae that he's thankful for their love. And Thessalonica, he's thankful for their hope. But in this letter, and this is the best, in his letter to the Corinthians, it says that he's thankful for the grace God has given them. It's like he's passing out affirmations and he's like, Ethan, I'm so grateful for your wisdom. And Jean, I'm so thankful for your joy. And Ali... I'm so glad God loves you. <laughs> he's, like, he's like, I'm so glad that God has so much grace for you because if there's anyone who needs God's grace, is you. Like, what kind of a backhanded compliment is that? Later in the letter, Paul says something like, um, Corinthians, so why do you hate the church of God? Like, am I supposed to be happy with you right now? Because I will tell you right now, I am not. That is almost a direct quote. Paul does not have a lot of nice things to say about the church in Corinth. He's clearly very angry with them, but that makes it that much more interesting what he does next. Before he jumps in with all the truth bumps, before he names all the elephants in the church, he opens his letter like this. He says, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called his holy people. Okay, so we're going to camp out there for a few minutes. The word for his holy people is one word in Greek, and that word is hagioi. Can you say that with me? Hagioi. Hagioi. It's a specific word. And that means pure, set apart, and holy. Some translations say saints. Notice he doesn't start by calling them sinners. He calls them holy ones, set apart ones, pure ones. The Corinthians, the ones who are getting drunk on communion wine, the ones who were shouting insults at each other. One of them was having an affair with his mother-in-law. The people had split into factions. They were flaunting their indiscretions. Some of them were spreading the wrong idea about the resurrection of Jesus. There were preachers who were just talking all over each other. Women gossiping during the worship services and not listening to the preacher at all. Can you imagine not listening to a preacher? And Paul calls these people saints. Why would he call this particular group of Christians saints? They certainly aren't acting like it. Well, let's take a look at a couple other instances in how Paul uses this word hagioi or saints. So take a look at, at 2 Corinthians 13. In, in this part of his interaction with the Corinthians, he's in Macedonia, and he's writing uh, from Macedonia to the church in Corinth, and he says, all the holy people here in Macedonia, all the hagioi, send their greetings. So apparently the people in the church in Corinth are hagioi, and the people in the church in Macedonia are hagioi. The letter to the Ephesians starts with the same word. 
to the Haggai in Ephesus, and to the Philippians, to all the Haggai in Christ Jesus at Philippi, and Colossians, to the Haggai in Colossae. So apparently, the people in Macedonia, and Ephesus, and Philippi, and Colossae, and Corinth are all Haggai. So who are the Haggai? It's all the Christians everywhere. So if Paul were to write a letter to us, he might say, to the Haggai in Beverly, to the saints in Salem, to the holy ones in Wenham, to the set-apart ones in Danvers. We, we are the Haggai. For Paul, there is this new reality that opens up, that you become aware of, that you see for the first time, that becomes true about you, when something happens, when you open yourself up to trusting in Jesus. So he's about to send this letter full of hard truths to the Corinthians, but before he gets into any of that, he starts, he leads with profound grace for the Corinthians. He reminds them who they are, saints. And that sets the tone for everything else that he's about to say in his letter. Why would this be so important? Well, you and I, we live into and according to the things that we believe, the self-perceptions that we have about ourselves. What we believe about ourselves has a direct impact on how we behave and live and interact with the world. All of us, we have these voices in our heads that tell us who we are. And those voices, those messages, they guide how we live and interact with the world. The old wounds, the old stories, the old messages and secrets and and shame and guilt. The names that we were called as kids. The list of regrets. The relationships that went bad. The mistakes. The sins, the shortcomings, the things that no one knows about, but we're still carrying them around. Unworthy. Not good enough try harder. And what can happen when we're not aware of it, or even sometimes when we are, is that those messages, they can guide and they can influence how we live and interact with the people around us currently. Something might have happened in our present, something happens today that presses on an old fear, an old insecurity, an old name that we were called. And we start to believe that maybe that old thing is true about us and it influences the way that we respond. If you believe that you are worthless, and you have nothing to contribute to the world, then that will fundamentally dictate how you engage with the world. But if you believe that like all humans, you are valued and loved, and everybody like you has a role to play and a gift to give, then you will live into that reality. If you believe that you are powerless against your vices and you can do nothing but give in to them, then that will impact how you engage and relate with your vices. But if you believe that the Holy Spirit's power in you is bigger and stronger than any temptation or issue that you face, that God's power can overcome anything in you that you struggle with, then you will live into that. If you believe that you, all you are, is a miserable, rotten sinner, and that's all that you can ever be, if you believe that your story and your relationships and your narratives are irreparably broken, then it's likely that you will continue to struggle with some of those same struggles and sins and relationships and shame over and over again because those things just aren't fixable. They're who I am. But if you believe that you are a saint, that God has given you a new identity, that God has swept you up in a new story and offered you a new reality, then you will live into and according to that reality. Paul opens his letter to the church in Corinth by calling the Corinthian church 
into a new self-perception so that they can live into and according to their identity as saints instead of how they were living before. This also, just by the way, if you're a parent or a caregiver or a teacher, this has pretty dramatic implications for how we talk to our kids and our students when they do something wrong. We have to make sure it's not about their identity. Their identity is secure. They are always loved. Yes, sometimes their behavior needs to change, but who they are is not at stake. And here's the other beautiful thing about Paul's greeting, the way that he opens this letter. So he starts again by naming himself and his co-writer, Sosthenes, as the senders of the letter, and then he names the recipients. It's the saints in Corinth and all saints everywhere as the recipients. But there's one more name that comes up over and over again in this short greeting, and it's repeated eight times just in these first nine verses of the book. The name of Jesus. Jesus is the bulk of the letter. The name of Jesus is central to this story. This whole thing is about him, start to finish. The Corinthians aren't saints because they're so great or because of anything that they have done or will do or can do, but simply because of Jesus's work in and through them and his love for them. It's not about do better, be better, knock it off, love Paul. It's about allowing Christ to transform us from the inside out, to sanctify us, to turn us into saints. Because when we do, Paul believes that all the elephants in the room will sort themselves out. So many of you uh, know Rachel and Andrew Hoover. They are deeply invested partners in our church, dear friends of mine. Andrew volunteers down in Kids Crew. Rachel's on the hospitality team here on the Pastoral Care Committee. And over the last five and a half years, they have been pretty open about their struggle with infertility. They have desperately wanted a child, and for years it just wasn't happening naturally, and so they started going through difficult and emotional infertility treatments. I remember a little over a year ago, Rachel and Andrew made up an excuse to pop over at our house, and they wanted to tell us with so much joy that one of the IVF rounds had finally taken and they were pregnant, and they were so excited. And then a week later, they came by again to tell us that they had miscarried, and round and round it went. Rachel and Andrew's journey has been hopeful at times, and it's been despairing at times. But two weeks ago today, Rachel gave birth to a beautiful little baby girl. Yes, let's give that. Isla, Isla Morgan. And I got to see the video from when they handed the baby to Rachel and Andrew for the first time, and... and it was just so beautiful. All Rachel could do was say, Andrew, we have Isla. We have Isla. Andrew, Andrew, we have Isla. She was so joyful. Well, over the last few weeks, Isla has had what the doctors have called a bit of a struggle leaving the womb. Her lungs have needed some extra time to develop and learn to breathe on their own. So after so many years of hope and waiting, Rachel and Andrew are still waiting to take their baby home from the hospital, from the special care nursery. But they go be with her and hold her and dote on her every single day. And this week, I got to go meet Isla in the hospital for the first time, and Rachel and I were chatting, and, and I'm holding this precious little girl. She's so sweet. She's asleep in my arms, and Rachel looks down at her, and she said something beautiful. She said, we have had to fight tooth and nail for this child every step of the way, but look how perfect she is. We have had to fight tooth and nail for this child, but look how perfect she is. When you, when you talk to Rachel and Andrew, there are no regrets about the struggle. There are no hesitations about their love. To them, she's been worth every step because look how perfect she is. 
That's how God looks at us. God has fought tooth and nail for us every step of the way, all the way to the cross. And yet when God sees us, God just says, and look how perfect you are. It's, it has nothing to do with what we have done or will do or can do. It's all about Christ's work in us, Christ's struggle for us once and for all. To the Haggioi in Corinth, look how perfect you are through what Christ has done in you. To the set-apart ones, the holy ones, to the saints at Anchor Bay Church, look how perfect you are. Now live into that. And that's how Paul sets the tone for our walk in the Corinthian letters. If my identity is insecure, if it's not secure in Christ, then the last thing that I'm going to want to do is talk about the elephants in the room. Because talking about them means I'm allowing God to turn on the bright lights. I'm allowing the spirit to search my heart and the world, the the things that I'd rather ignore and maybe push into a corner. But if my identity is secure in Christ, then I can be ruthlessly honest, I can confess, I can be transparent, I can take the risk of having the hard conversation because my identity is not on the line here. So I'll I'll close my sermon today with a, a little bit of what this has looked like for me this week. So earlier this week, I got an email from a friend who said, she just said that she was very upset with me. She didn't say what she was upset about. She just said that she was upset. So there it was, this elephant in the room. And I didn't know what its name was or how to engage with it. And I don't love that. Because when I get a cryptic email like that, I tend to fill in the blanks. What could she be upset about? And I don't know about you, but when I'm filling in the blanks about something like that, I tend to go to the worst case scenario. So first I started racking my brain about what thing I did to make her so upset. I made up a list in my head of things that she could have possibly taken offense at, and then I defended myself in my head for all of those things that I had just made up. But then I noticed another thought creep in. And this one wasn't about what I might have done to upset her. It was about who I am as a person. Maybe she's upset because she thinks I'm a terrible friend. Maybe she's upset because she thinks I'm the worst. And maybe she's right. Maybe I am the worst. Am I the worst? Maybe there's something wrong with how I do friendship. And then another thought crept in. And this one wasn't about who I am, but about who she is, because there was a protective part of my brain that wanted to protect itself. Maybe she's upset because she's terrible. Maybe she doesn't know how to engage in relationships. Maybe I'm not the problem. Maybe she's the problem. And I start spiraling down these super unhelpful dialogues in my head with myself about my identity and about her identity. And then something happened like it usually does on weeks when I'm writing a sermon. God reminded me about what I was preaching about today. I, Paul, write to the saints in Corinth and to all the saints everywhere. Well, that means Paul's talking about me. I'm a saint. That means that no matter what I might have done to offend or hurt my friend, my fundamental identity is not terrible person or terrible friend, but saint. That's who I am. And being a a saint means that I can interact with this person out of that reality. It means I can respond to her like a saint would respond. I can have an open conversation about something that I might have done wrong without my identity being threatened or wounded because at the end of the day... I'm still a saint. And that also means, I realized, that because she puts her trust in Jesus, that she's a saint too. No matter how much I want to defend myself, no matter how much I want to make her the problem, I was about to have the incredible privilege of emailing a saint. How cool is that? 
in Christ, look how perfect she is. And so I started to picture my friend's face in my mind, and I imagined what a conversation with her could be like and what, how it could go. I imagined affirming her identity as Christ's beloved, even just to myself, and interacting with her gently as one saint to another saint, looking for understanding and peace between us. And as I thought about that, my posture toward her softened and my feelings about whatever the interaction was about to be started to shift. Now, I know I can never control how she sees or responds or interacts with me, but I can choose to interact with her like God does, like a saint would, to fight tooth and nail for her, one saint for another. So I asked for the Spirit's help to write an email back, and I asked if she'd like to talk about whatever the elephant was that was bothering her. I told her she was important to me and that her feelings are important to me. And I asked if she'd give me a chance to apologize and to make things right if I could. And, and I think that posture disarmed her a little bit and she said that we could talk about it. So we went for a walk a few days later and she told me about what was going on in her heart and mind. And I told her that I cared about her and that I wanted things to be right between us. I apologized for the ways that I'd misunderstood her and she forgave me one saint to another saint. And we talked about how we might open communication in the future so that we could handle these kinds of things differently in our relationship. How different could our conversation have gone if we interacted out of our old narratives or our old insecurities or our old identities instead of who we are in Christ as saint to saint? But when we open ourselves up to God's identity defining us right at the beginning of the conversation, those elephants just don't feel so scary to talk about anymore. So friends, as we open this series in the book of Corinthians, I want to invite us to bravely engage with the elephants in the room, knowing that our fundamental identity is secure. Let's be honest about what touches us, what wounds us, what heals us, what offends us, what scares us, knowing that at the outset that you and I and everyone everywhere who calls on the name of Jesus, that together we are saints. We have been fought for tooth and nail, and because of Jesus, look how perfect we are. So let's live into that. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for who you are and who you call us to be how you invite us to engage with and wrestle with the world in real, profound, life-changing ways. God, we pray that you would guide us as we look at these books of Corinthians, that you would convict us and challenge us, but that we would be uh, able and willing to lean in courageously, knowing that nothing will change about who you say we are as saints. We love you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.